Isn't that amazing? Come on, y'all. So good. I love it. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Definition Church. It is so good to see all of you. And if you're a guest today, thanks for being a part of our service. We're honored that you're here and for us, church is family. So we hope you feel right at home today. Of course, I want to give a big shout out to all of you that have joined us online and then to the ladies at the Northern Piedmont Correctional Facility. We love you girls. Come on, Definition. Can we welcome our church family? So glad you're with us. Well, today we are going to talk about what's happening in Israel. And, and I just want to begin by saying a couple things. First of all, I've got more to say than I have time to say. And uh, so like every week, let me just make sure y'all know this, a full manuscript of my message will be posted online by late tomorrow. You just go to the website, you can scroll down a little bit, you'll see the, the, all the messages for several weeks. And right, if you click on it, then you'll see the discussion guide, you'll see all the notes, all that's available. So there's a lot of history here that I don't have time to cover that'll probably be interesting to a lot of you. I know people are asking questions about, you know, why is this happening and why has it been happening for so long over there? And, and all that's in the notes. We're going to cover some of it, but all, there's a lot more detail. And then I just want to encourage you to do what Pastor Chris mentioned a moment ago. Let's be praying for King of Kings Church Pastor Chad, right in the heart of Jerusalem, thriving church that you guys, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we've been supporting them through our giving, our missions giving for years and years and years. They're one of our, our best partners. We love this much. In fact, if you want to give to what's happening in, in Israel, if you give something to the church and earmark it, King of Kings, we'll send it. In December, we've got our missions offering coming up, and I'm sure we'll take a portion of that and send it to Israel. And it allows us to make a difference through the local church. And so that's how you can, you can be involved in that way. Well, today I want to answer four questions. Number one, why is there all this conflict in Israel? What, you know, what's kind of the history of the conflict? Number two, why does Israel have a right to the Holy Land? Number three, what does this have to do with the Bible and the kingdom of God? And number four, what do I do? You know, how do we respond to this as the body of Christ? So let me give you a little bit of history. It's important to know, first of all, that over the last 3,000 years, boy, that's a long time. Over the last 3,000 years, there have only been three times where there was an independent nation state in the Holy Land. Only three times. And all three times, it was Israel. And it's important to understand Historically, there has never been an Arab or Muslim state in the land of Israel. Ever, ever, not one time. Three times there has been an independent national state and it was Israel. The three times are the first commonwealth, which was King David. And of course, we've talked about that many times in your Old Testament. The second commonwealth, which was in 160 B.C., and most people would say lasted till about 70 AD. And the Roman Empire, of course, had come to power. They destroyed the temple, burned the temple. They were persecuting Jews who were scattered all over the Roman Empire. But even when they were scattered, there was always a remnant who stayed in Jerusalem, who stayed in Israel, fighting and hanging on to the land. And then we have modern Israel. So how did modern Israel, when we go from AD 70 to the 
1900s, the 20th century, how did modern Israel come into being? Well, in 1917, the British government made the Balfour Declaration. This was a promise at the end of World War I. In World War I, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany and they lost the war. And in 1917, the British government made this promise that the Jews would have a homeland in what then was called Palestine is modern day Israel today. So they wanted them to have a place where they could return, that they could have their ancient homeland and they made them that promise. And then later in 1947, the fighting was was happening. And, and, And by the way, just so you understand terms, that's what Zionism is. It's the belief that the Jewish people have a right to return to their homeland and have a nation, a state that they rule over and that is free from from danger and violence and being attacked by the neighbors. That's what Zionism is. And uh, well, when they went there, here's what this whole conflict is all about. Here's the whole conflict. From AD 70 to the 20th century, The Ottoman Empire, of course, was in power towards the end of that period, and it was a Muslim empire. And so even though in Israel you had about 50,000 Jews, there were 10 times, by the end of it, there were 10 times as many Muslims living there. Well, what happened was after World War I, the League of Nations was formed, and they began breaking up the Ottoman Empire and creating these geopolitical states. This is where all of the Middle Eastern countries come from. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. All of those countries in the Middle East came out of this, out of the mandate where these geopolitical uh, territories were created when they broke up the Ottoman Empire because the Ottomans sided with Germany, lost the war. So their land was broken up into these geopolitical entities who were then given the freedom, the opportunity to become independent nation states, which they did. Well, one of those independent nation states is what they called Palestine and was renamed Israel once Israel declared independence. So that was the end of the world war and that all the states were broken up. Well, here's the problem. In Palestine or modern day Israel, you had thousands and thousands of Arabs who had to make a decision. When Israel was created, are we going to live under Israeli rule or get out? And if we get out, we lose everything. And that was a challenge. That's what the conflict is about. Is Arabs saying, no, this is our land. And Israel saying, no, this is our land, we're still fighting about. That's what the conflict is all about. And it goes way back. Now, here's the question. If that's true in light of that history, in light of the fact that both Arabs and Jews claim the land, why would anybody believe Israel has the right to rule over the Holy Land? Let me give you a handful of reasons. Number one, they are the indigenous people of the Holy Land. So Israel goes back 4,000 years to when God chose Abraham and God chose a land. And we'll talk about why God did that in just a moment. So the Jewish people are the 
indigenous people. They're the ones who have been there for generation after generation, thousands and thousands of years. That's the first reason. The second reason is because of the mandate at the end of World War I, they were granted, they were given the land just like all the Arab nations were given their land. So it was gifted to them. The allies made that decision. And listen, we have to just understand this. Every country, including ours, came into being through conquest. And so that was true for the Holy Land. The Ottomans lost. So they lost the right to determine who gets the land. And it was all divided up. The Arabs got all the rest. Israel got the Holy Land because they were the indigenous people. So second, it was given to them. Third, Israel declared independence in 1948. And when they declared independence, of course, they were attacked immediately by the five Arab nations surrounding them and miraculously, literally supernaturally, because they were all by themselves, no help, and they won the war. God protected Israel. And in 1949, the very next year, the United Nations, the League of Nations became the United Nations, and the United Nations recognized Israel as a free country. So they're the indigenous people, they were given the land, they were recognized by the United Nations in 1949, and since they have been defending the land over and over and over again from these ongoing attacks for 80 years years. That's why they have claim and legal claim according to international law. That's why they have claim to the land. Now, this is so important to understand. Israel is the only nation recognized by the United Nations that anyone else in the world challenges their existence or their right to exist. No other nation is ever challenged. So let me give you a parallel example. Now, we've got a lot of work in India. In India, years ago, used to be what is now India and Pakistan. Did y'all know that? It was divided. And when they divided India and Pakistan, all the Muslims in India were forced to move to Pakistan. And all the Hindus in Pakistan were forced to moved to India. And through that whole conflict, literally 10 times as many refugees were created, 10 times as many people died in the battle, and yet no one questions Pakistan's right to exist. Right? Exactly the same scenario. The reason everybody continues to challenge Israel's right to exist, this is what we've got to understand today, is because it is spiritual. It's spiritual. And we have to understand the larger picture. There is a spiritual battle over the land. So they declared their independence. Then in 1967, the Six-Day War broke out. Once again, Israel won. And in the Six-Day War, they gained control of the West Bank. They gained control of of Gaza. They gained control of of the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula. Then later in 1987 to 1993, you had the first Intifada. And they, which was a, a rebellion of the Palestinians against Israel. And this led to the Oslo Accords and the formation of the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Well, then you had the second 
Antifada in 2000 to 2005. And in this battle, the Arabs gained control of the Gaza Strip. Well, once they gained control of the Gaza Strip, Israel pulls out. And in 2007, this is a free election. In 2007, the Palestinians elected Hamas to lead them politically. And of course, Hamas is a terrorist organization whose charter says we exist to annihilate Israel. And of course, that's what anti-Semitism is. It is prejudice and hatred for the Jewish people. Death to Israel, that whole idea, that's anti-Semitism. And Hamas exists to destroy Israel. So throughout history, over and over again, Israeli has, this, Israel has offered Palestine on five different occasions the right to become a free, independent state and live at peace with Israel, beside Israel. All five times the offer has been rejected because Hamas is not interested in creating an independent state. They're not interested in ruling. They're not interested in helping the Palestinian people. They exist to destroy Israel. And so throughout history, I mean, as long as most of us in this room have been alive, the international community has tried to help Palestine because it is true, Palestine is a dump. They're living in great poverty. The water is not safe to drink. The power supply is, is unreliable. There is literally sewer, raw sewer, washing up on their beaches every day. That is true. But it's because since 2007, Hamas has controlled Palestine. And rather than taking all of the monetary support, all the humanitarian aid, all the things that the international community has tried to do to help the living conditions and the people of Palestine, Hamas has used that. They've sold it on the black market. They bought rockets and paid their leaders. In fact, y'all remember Yasser Arafat, right? He died, he was worth a billion dollars. Because rather than using the money to help the Palestinians, he was, they were, and this is true for all the Hamas leaders, they were making themselves rich, they were buying rockets and trying to destroy Israel. That is the history. And again, why would anybody do that? Because it's spiritual. I mean, one of the things I think for me this week, that I, it's like something has changed even in my own heart and mind this week. It's just recognizing, maybe opening my eyes to this fact again, being reminded it's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. So here's a question. What does this have to do with the biblical story and the kingdom of God? So let me tell you again the Bible story because I think most people misunderstand the Bible. Most people think the Bible is a, a big list of stories and we read these cute little stories and we learn ethical lessons. That is not what the Bible is. The Bible is a history of a battle that is waging between God and his kids for, the plan, uh, for planet Earth and the establishment of his kingdom and Satan, his kids, and the battle of kingdom Earth the battle of the earth for his kingdom. That is the battle that we're in. It is all spiritual. So let me help you to see this biblically. Genesis chapter one. How did all this begin? Well, we have to keep in mind, when God created the world, 
And this is what you see in the first two chapters of the Bible. And this is what you see in the last two chapters of the Bible. This is how the story will end. When God created the world, his desire was to create a place and to create kids. We're not pets. We're kids. God wanted to create kids that could grow. He created us in his image so that we could grow up and rule and reign under his authority to build and establish the kingdom of God. Listen, for his glory and the blessing of all people. That's God's heart. God wants you to be a king and a queen. This is why the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis are so helpful to see and to understand. We were born to reign. Genesis chapter one, right? Isn't that good? So in Genesis chapter one, God said, let us create man in our own image. So God created and he said, let's let him rule and reign over all creation. That was God's heart. That's still what God's trying to do on the earth. And that's how the story ends when you read the last two chapters of the Bible. Now, what happened? When God did this, God did not exist all by himself. God had a kingdom already. God had a lot of supernatural, heavenly, divine beings, chief of whom was Satan. Satan used to be good. We all understand that, right? Satan was good at one time. But when God created the world and created mankind to rule on planet earth over his kingdom, Satan was very jealous and highly offended. Satan expected God to pick him and God created us. And at that moment, Satan declared a war on God in his kingdom. Genesis chapter three, Satan enters into the battle. He comes in disguise and he comes to Adam and Eve and he deceives them into sin into declaring independence, into declaring war. We will build our own kingdom. We will not live under God's authority. And paradise is lost and the world is at war. Listen to me, we are at world war today and it's not a physical world. We're in a spiritual world. What's happening in the physical is simply a reflection of what is happening in the spiritual so beginning in Genesis 3, paradise is lost and the world begins spinning out of control. In fact, it is so bad that by Genesis chapter 6, God realizes, I got I to gotta take extreme measure. Watch this. Genesis 6 verse 1, then the people began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, who are the sons of God? The sons of God are divine beings who Satan has convinced to join him in his rebellion against God, to take over and rule over the earth. And so they've got a battle strategy. What are we gonna do? We're gonna impregnate human women. We're gonna have demigods. We're gonna have children and they're gonna rule over the earth and they'll have supernatural power. You say, Alan, is that in the Bible? Let me read it, watch this. Verse two, the sons of God saw, these divine beings saw the beautiful women 
They took any of them they wanted as their wives. And then the Lord said, my spirit's not gonna put up with human beings. Why is God upset with humans? Because they, they went along with this plan. So my spirit's not gonna put up with them anymore. They'll, only, they'll be mortal flesh in the future. Their normal lifespan will, be no more, lifespan will be no more than 120 years. So in those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. Who are they? They're demigods. Part God, part human. That's who they are. And they're giants. Watch. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. So they literally had these supernatural powers. Well, the Lord sees all this, the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. So what does he do? The Lord says, I'm gonna wipe out the human race. You ever read this story and think, man, God seems to be overreacting. Why's God so upset? You know, people, you know, people do what people do. They're just misbehaving. And God says, I'm gonna drown them all. It's a war. And God understands. I have to go to battle and I have to wipe out my enemy so that I can build my kingdom. Why? For the blessing of all people. If, just like what we saw last week. If you allow evil to exist, everybody suffers. And God understands that. And so what you see in the Old Testament is when evil gets too powerful, God steps in and puts an end to evil for the benefit of the whole. And so God's at war, now watch this. After the flood, the survivors of the flood, they begin to multiply again on the earth. And we get over to Genesis chapter 11 and what's happened? They're gonna build the Tower of Babel. Now the Tower of Babel, this is so important to understand. The Tower of Babel is not like some architecture, it's not like the the Statue of Liberty, it's not like the tower in Paris. You know, it's, it's not like something we look at and go, oh, isn't that pretty? That's not what the Tower of Babel is. The Tower of Babel is a siege ramp. The Tower of Babel, what they're doing is the people said, we're gonna build a mountain. We're gonna build a ziggurat. We're gonna build this tower that will allow us to march into heaven and storm the gates of heaven. That's what's happening. It's a full out rebellion. And so that's why, again, God comes down and he judges them because they have declared war on the kingdom of God. Now what happens in that moment, and you can read something about this in Psalm 82, but God scatters the nations. Now here's what he does. He divides up the land he divides the people and he puts a supernatural divine being. We usually refer to them as demons. I'm not sure that's a, really a good word. But he puts a supernatural divine being in charge of each land. They're his agents. But over time, once again, Satan convinces them to rebel against God. And so then you end up with a world full of all these nations and people who are following false gods who have rebelled against the God of the universe. And there's a battle. So what does God do? Genesis chapter 12, God's solution is, I'm gonna pick a man, Abraham, and I'm gonna pick a land. I'm gonna have a spot too. 
And in my spot, I'm gonna build up my family. I'm gonna build up my army so that we can take back the world and establish the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 12. So God picks a man and he says to Abraham, I'm gonna make you more numerous than the sand sand on the seashores. I'm gonna make you more numerous than the stars in the sky. I'm gonna raise up a great army. For what purpose? To build the kingdom of God. Not so that all of his subjects would bow before him, but for the blessing. This is always God's heart, everything he does. It's for the blessing of all people. That's God's desire. And so he chose a man. When you get over to Genesis chapter 16, and the devil's got a new strategy. Genesis chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah have not had a child yet. And so the devil deceives Sarah into offering Abraham Hagar. Abraham takes the bait, has sex with Hagar, and Ishmael is born. See, the devil has infiltrated God's people. And Ishmael is the father. This is so important to understand historically. Ishmael is the father of all the Arabs around the world. And Isaac is the father of all the Jews around the world. Now listen to what God said to Ish- or to Hagar about her son Ishmael. Listen to this. So this is in verse 11. And the angel said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You're to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry in the wilderness. This son of yours, listen, will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he'll live in open hostility against all of his relatives. Who are his relatives? Isaac. You got Isaac and Ishmael. And what God says is for now on, they'll be at war. Why? Because the devil is leading Ishmael and his descendants and I'm leading leading Isaac and his descendants. Now listen, that's not politically correct, but it's just the truth. There's one good God that we serve and every other God is in rebellion against our God and their goal is still kill, destroy. The goal of our God is that everybody would have life and life abundant. Amen, isn't he a good God? So when you look at the Old Testament, now you understand the context. Why is Israel always fighting? Why does God send Israel back to the promised land and have them kick out 32 nations, defeat 32 kings? What is all that about? It's a battle for planet earth that the kingdom of God would be established for the blessing of all people. Now, we'll get to the New Testament. Christmas is coming. And when we think about Christmas, we think about cute little baby baby Jesus in the manger scenes, some cuddly little shepherds, you know, some fluffy little sheep. Isn't that cute? It's not cute. It's a war scene. Because here's what's happening in that moment. God decides it's time. It's the fullness of time. 
And I will send my son into the battle. Who is he? He's the commander of the Lord's army. Jesus enters into the battle. That's what Christmas is. Christmas isn't cute little baby Jesus. It's warrior Jesus come to rescue our hearts. This is why the Christmas story at the very early, right out of the gate, everybody's trying to kill Jesus. Why? It's spiritual. It's not natural at all. It's spiritual. And Satan knows if I can kill him when he's a baby, I won't have to deal with him when he's a man. And so Jesus grows up and he models for us what it's like, what it looks like to live in a world at war, to represent the kingdom and to build the kingdom on earth. He models all of that. And then Jesus goes to the cross. Listen, when Jesus, I want you to think about Christmas totally different this year. When every time you see a manger, just try to get a picture of Jesus storming the beach, running straight into the line of fire, knowing I will die so that you can live. Isn't that good? Isn't that, that's a different story, right? And so Jesus runs into the battle and eventually He's on the cross and he dies to pay for our sin because your sin is the one thing that gave Satan power over you. Gave Satan the power of death. Gave Satan the power of shame to control your life. And Jesus went to the cross to disarm Satan, to defeat Satan, to defeat our sin and death and the grave so that we could rise up the children of God. Amen? Oh boy, watch this now. God's clever. If you were trying to take over the world, what would be a great strategy? What would you do? Let's get creative. God's got a plan. After the resurrection of Christ, he ascends into heaven and the church is just gathered. They're praying and waiting. And all of a sudden, the spirit of God fell on the church. This is so important. And we're gonna talk more about this in a couple of weeks. It's Pentecost. And all of those nations, all of those areas that he gave away at Babel, they've all gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And they don't know it, but God is about to infiltrate the enemy's camp. And the spirit of God falls on the church and those people from all over the world, all of a sudden they're born into God's kingdom. They become the children of God. The spirit of God's come to live in. And then they leave Jerusalem and they go back all over the world. The kingdom of God is spreading. Because God's intention is to bring everything in heaven and earth under the rule and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's working through us to make it happen. Man, that's so good. And now you understand what the Bible's about. So here's the final question. So what? What do we do? Let me give you some thoughts. Number one, we gotta embrace a supernatural worldview. We've got to realize, look at this verse. We've got to realize that we live in a world at war and that our 
battle. We're fighting spiritual forces. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me read this to you. Beginning in verse three. We're human, but we don't wage wars as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons. It's not guns and bombs, but God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We've got to recognize we're in a, we're in a spiritual battle. Secondly, we've got to enter the battle. Listen, God's drafted all of us. You've been drafted. That's what Acts 2 is. Is that we're drafted to enter the battle. You know what, right now people are asking, is this the end? Is Jesus coming back? Well, that's a fair question. It's a good question. In Acts chapter one, the disciples are asking the same question. Same question. Jesus says it's not for you to know the seasons and times. In fact, Jesus doesn't know. He says, but I got good news. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what purpose? To be my witness. The word witness in the group is actually martyr. In other words, you're gonna receive the power to give your life being a witness, being a martyr, building the kingdom of God, no matter what the cost. That's the war we've been enlisted, drafted into. So we've gotta recognize we're in a battle. Let's enter the battle. For far too long, the American church has been on the sidelines, living the American dream, going to heaven one day, but apathetic about the battle that's raging. Listen, I hope that we don't have to experience what happened in Israel before the church wakes up. And when we look at our world, it's so easy to blame a politician they can't fix it. It's spiritual. It's up to us. It's the church. We're the army of the Lord. Now, what is our mission? Well, Jesus made that clear. Matthew 28, Jesus said, listen, all authority, because of my death and resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth has been given, it out, given to me. Go, therefore, in that authority. Go, I'm sending you into the battle. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got to embrace our mission. This is why we're here. This is what we're alive for. We're not here to pay our bills. We're not here to watch football. Nothing wrong with paying. Probably should pay the bills. Okay, watch. I loved watching Carolina kick Miami's tail last night. That was awesome. But that ain't why I'm here. I'm here for a much bigger story than that, right? To make disciples of all the nations. Who are we fighting? Ephesians 6, 2. This is so important. We're not fighting Muslims. We're not fighting Hindus. Not fighting the Chinese. Not fighting the Russians. In fact, that's the role of government. Now, government needs to engage in that way. Ephesians 6, 12 says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is spiritual and our weapons are different. And we've got to understand that our enemy is not people. People, people need to be rescued. Man, this week we got special forces from here in America who are 
going into Gaza to try to rescue hostages. That's what you do. That's what I do. God's called us to go into our city and into our workplace and into our neighborhood and rescue people who've been taken captive by the enemy. That's what we do. Special forces, sign me up, right? That's what we do. How do we win? Well, Jesus has already won. I love Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He canceled the record of charges against us, took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authority. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. But there's still a war waging. And we have to engage in that battle. How do we do that? Number one, we follow Jesus, our commanding officer. We follow Jesus. This is why we talk about this all the time, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, so we can do what Jesus did. Here's how Jesus said it, Matthew 4, 19. You follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. In other words, you follow me, I'm going to turn you into a Navy SEAL, I'm going to send you into the enemy camp, and we're going to rescue those captives, those people that have been left behind. We're going after them. We won't leave any behind. That's what Jesus says, right? Second, we got to work together in unity. One of the things that we got to be careful as a church, always careful, that we do not allow petty things to divide us. We got to rally around the mission of God that trumps the little things that the enemy would love to bait us into being divided over. I love Psalm 33, 133, where David says that how good and perfect it is when Brothers dwell together in unity for it's like the anointing oil running down the beard of Aaron for there God's commanded blessing rest. Third, we gotta trust God for God's power. God will give us all we need. He will empower us to be a witness. Fourth, listen, this is so important. We gotta train, not try. Let me say that again, so important. We gotta train, not try. One of the reasons so many Christians are discouraged in their faith is because for years and years, they've been trying to do better. They've been trying to follow Jesus. They've been trying to obey the Bible. They've been trying to love people. We don't try, we train. People who try lose. People who train win. See, if we train, then we can be prepared. So, so for example, yesterday a bunch of us watched football, today a bunch of us watched football. You know what allows a football player to be successful? It ain't his trying, it's his training. Come on, isn't that right? And the same thing is true for us. If we're gonna be successful in this battle, it's not by trying harder, it's training harder. We gotta prepare and train for the battle we are in. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, listen, I'm training. He didn't say, I'm trying. He said, I'm training. I'm beating my body. I'm not swinging aimlessly. Every runner trains to win. I'm in training. This is why we emphasize spiritual practices all the time. It's because it's our training. My time with Jesus is my training. When I'm in prayer, I'm training. When I open the Bible, I'm training. When I'm fasting, I'm training, and I'm training. And listen, what a great athlete has the ability to do is they're so well trained that in the moment, they can just react. And what a great 
Christian, what a spiritually mature warrior for Christ can do is he's sensitive to the Spirit of God because he's been cultivating that relationship. And in the moment, he can act and stay in step with God. So we're not trying. We're training. So we got to train every day. Train every day because we are in a battle. Next, we got to proclaim the gospel. We got to get a little more bold. We got to come out of the closet. We got to stop worrying about being politically correct. In fact, one of the things that's been, yeah, we can clap about that. But it's been shocking to me to watch people, even in our country, stand up and support terrorism. While the church is silent. We got to speak up. We got to stop worrying about being politically correct and just be correct. And tell our world about Jesus. We have good news. Listen, their message is, let's kill Israel. Our message is, God loves you and died for you, wants a relationship with you, wants to make you a king, a queen, wants you to rule and reign, gives you a whole new family, wants to transform your life. We have good news. We got to start sharing it more boldly than we've ever done. So in our neighborhood and in our family and in our workplace and all these, we just got to start talking about Jesus more and stop caring whether people like us when we do. We're at war. We're not really trying to be liked. We're trying to invite people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So we gotta, be, we gotta be bold. And then finally, we just have to commit wholeheartedly to the mission. We can't just play church. Listen, I'm telling you, if the church in America, and I'm, the thing I've just been so stirred this week about is just praying that the church in America and all over the world would be shaken out of complacency and apathy. Because if the church doesn't give, if we don't give ourselves wholly and fully to the mission, I'm telling you, in our streets, the same thing will happen that we saw in Israel because our enemy is committed. Our enemy's glad to die. Our enemy is not concerned that you're offended. Our enemy is not trying to make friends. And so we have to decide to go all in. Listen, here's what's so good. Not with bombs and guns, but with love and peace and service, following in the footsteps of Jesus who could have come and said, bow or else, and instead he bowed and served us and loved us and gave his life. Why would he do that? So that people would not be forced into subjection, but so that people would freely choose to worship the greatest king of all creation and all eternity. Amen. The one who loved us and gave his life for us. I'm glad to worship and to bless him. Amen. So I want to just call us to repentance, all of us, for staying on the sideline when we should have been in the battle for being silent when we should have spoken up, for expecting to be served when we should have served, when we chose pride over humility and independence over dependence, 
and our own personal wealth over generosity. When we live for the day instead of living for eternity, the church has to repent. And if we will, I'm telling you, we will rise up. Listen, this city belongs to us. This city belongs to God's kingdom. And we have to have that perspective. We are taking ground. We are taking, God put us here. There's some other people over in Israel. God put us here. Let's take this city without any apology for Jesus. Amen. Come on, y'all. Let's stand up together. And I just want to pray. And I want to just to challenge you today and, and this week to be praying and thinking about this. And I want to just lead us in a prayer of repentance. So let's just close our eyes and open our hearts. God, today we repent. Lord, we thank you for entering into the battle to rescue our souls. God, we thank you for the transforming work that's happened in our hearts. God, today we're embracing a spiritual worldview. Today we recognize we are in a battle. Today we are enlisting, we're signing up today. We're the children of God full of the Spirit of God. And Lord, we will give our lives to telling everybody we can about Jesus. We will not be ashamed. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And God, we will stand up and boldly tell everybody about Jesus for your glory and the blessing of all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isn't God good? Can we just praise Him? So good.